Hello and welcome to our special focus 100 calendar meeting. Today is Wednesday the 26th of July and I'm delighted to introduce Ria B. Ria is from New Jersey and lives in Israel and has been in Norway since 2002. So Ria, we would love to hear your experience, strength and hope. Thank you, Noel. Hi everyone, my name is Ria. I'm a compulsive reader and bulimic. Um, I just want to apologize in advance because my kids are outside and because they're my children, they can't do anything that's not at full volume. So they're just like full on, they're just so loud. So if you hear them in the background, sorry. Anyway, um, like I said, I'm a compulsive reader and bulimic. I have been in the program since 2002. I've been abstinent since 2000, March 29, 2004 with one three month experiment. Um, with intuitive eating, which did not work for me. Um, but uh, I come from a top weight that I know of, of about 250 pounds. It's very possible I went over that for the Europeans. I wish I could convert it for you, but I'm an ignorant American. So I don't know how to convert it into stone or whatever, but I'm sure you guys know how, because you're way smarter than us. Um, anyway, so I used to weigh about 250 pounds or so. Um, I lost over a hundred pounds and got down to 120, which was actually way too small, um, settled out around the 160 mark after having children, had a relapse, um, for three months and have had a little bit of extra that because I'm in my forties now just decided to stick around. So I, um, despite being abstinent and doing everything I need to do, um, I am not the smallest I've ever been, but I'm far from the biggest I've ever been. Um, most people who would look at me say that I look like a normal person, which I still think is funny because I look like a normal person, but I sure as hell ain't one. <laughs> anyway, so, um, a little bit about my story. I, um, I believe I was born a compulsive overeater. We have a video from when I was six months old of my parents. Can you mention food in this meeting? Is that a thing? You are, you can. Okay, fine. Um, we have a video of me when I was six months old in my little high chair and my parents on both sides of me, and they're holding a huge tub of Dairy Queen. For those of you who don't know what Dairy Queen is, it's like, like an ice cream extravaganza. Okay. So they have this big container of it and they're eating it and I'm watching, I'm curious. So one of them takes a spoonful and puts it in my mouth. You can see my face. I lit up like a winning slot machine. Like it was, I had never experienced anything like this in my life. For the next 10 minutes, you see me going <clears throat> at my parents <laughs> and they kept giving it to me because it was funny and it was cute. Um, but that's basically what I did for the next 20 years of my life. <laughs> so um, uh, yeah, I was always, I always had a lot of anxiety, social anxiety. I always felt different. I had that addict thing where I never felt like I fit in and I always felt different and I never had my place. Um, and I compensated for that by, you know, trying really hard, try, attention seeking, all of these behaviors to compensate for the own, the story I told myself that I didn't fit in. And to be fair, I didn't really fit in in school. I never really had, I didn't really have friends till I was in like sixth grade. So I was a very lonely kid. I was a very imaginative kid um, and an anxious kid. So I self-medicated with food. So I would, you know, have my lunch at school. Um, and I knew even from the time I was young that I did really weird things with food that other kids didn't do. Like I took their pizza crust out of the garbage can and ate their leftover sandwiches and like 
I didn't see any other kids doing that. So I already knew something was up with me. Um, it was never a mystery to me that something in me was broken. It wasn't like I had some denial thing that there was something wrong. I knew there was something wrong, but I come from America where like, you're supposed to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and figure it out. So I just assumed that the problem was me. Um, so I, you know, I was gaining weight because I was eating a lot of food. I would eat lunch, um, and snacks, et cetera, come home, snack all afternoon, um, eat dinner with my family and then sneak up and down the stairs at night taking snacks back to my bedroom to the point where I would hide the wrappers behind my bed. And when we moved out of the house where I was a kid, there was a, a wall of wrappers behind my bed. Um, and my mom kind of looked at me like, what? And I was like, how did that get there? Weird. You know, and like, <laughs> so like, that's, that's what I, I did. And then, you know, it was no mystery why I was an obese kid. Um, and I knew that the problem was the way that I ate, but I didn't know how to not eat like that. Um, I went on my first commercial diet when I was about eight years old, maybe 10 years old, and promptly failed at it um, because I've since learned that when I introduce certain substances into my system, such as flour or sugar, um, I kick off a phenomenon of craving that I cannot control. So even if I'm eating a limited amount of calories, if I'm eating food that has those substances in it, and I have no boundaries around the food that I'm eating, I'm going to eat compulsively, which is why one day when I was, I went to one of these commercial diet places and bought my food for the week, you know, and I'm driving home. Um, my house was like a mile from this place. And by the time I got home, I'd eaten all the desserts for the week. So, you know, I think the signs were there that this wasn't going to work. Um, anyway, so, um, I was over 200 pounds by the time I was, uh, early teen, you know, 13, 14. And I spent my, 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 and thank God my parents were, they never pressured me in terms of my weight, but my mother knew that I, I was not happy about it. And she, neither of us really understood addiction at this point. So she just said, okay, whatever you need to do, we'll do. And she went on diets with me and she had her own body stuff. And so for me, whenever, whenever I fell, failed at a diet, it was like a double shame because I failed myself and then I failed her and she knew that I failed. And so it just was just vulnerability and shame all around, just, just not fun. Um, and I remember that now I think about it now because my oldest son um, to be honest, I don't know if he's a compulsive overeater, but he is overweight. Um, but I say nothing to him about it. Um, and if he comes to me and says he has something that he wants to do, I'm happy to encourage him and support him. But it's just not a conversation that I have with him because quite frankly, it's his, this is his journey. And the only it only worked for me when I said to my mother, maybe I'm the one who's supposed to fix this. Maybe it's not your job. So my role as a parent, I have since learned is I'm here to support you in whatever it is that you want to do for yourself, but I am not going to do it for you. And I'm not going to be your police officer, um, which is a very different approach um, than the one I was raised with. And um, basically, so when I was 14, my mother left my father and my three siblings and went with me down to North Carolina for a month, um, which in retrospect is a big deal. And I'm, I'm a mom. I have uh, five kids. And, um, I know what a big deal it is to go away, let alone for a month with one of your kids. It's a big sacrifice. Um, and it's a sacrifice on the other end with the rest of my family, which I didn't appreciate at the time. Um, but anyway, we went to this, um, diet and fitness center in North Carolina. 
um, which is considered, I used to call it like um, the celebrity fat farm, because like when you went there, they had a wall full of like all the famous celebrities who would come there to lose weight. So I felt really special. Um, anyway, so I remember sitting in this um, lecture that they gave, and it was all about caloric intake versus metabolic output, which basically means if you eat less and exercise, you'll lose weight. Now I was 14 and I was like, duh, you know, people think when you have like overweight people, I think people genuinely think that we don't know about like how science works. <laughs> like maybe if you eat less or go on a diet, you'll lose weight. And it's like, oh my, really? I never, that never occurred to me once ever in my entire life that I could eat less and lose weight. Like, come on people. Anyway, so I sat in, um, I sat in this lecture and this, this person was explaining like the science of weight loss. And I, I raised my hand and I was like, listen, I get what you're saying. I understand this, but what happens when I'm in my room upstairs and there's like a cake in the kitchen that's talking to me from downstairs saying, come on, let's go. Like sending me texts and emails and stuff and being like, let's go. Like, what do I do? And this person looked at me and they go, well, just don't eat it. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. See, I see your faces. That means you're here, right? She, I remember thinking to myself, I just asked you a multiple choice question, okay? Just don't eat it is not one of the options, okay? <laughs> one is eat it now. Two is eat it later. Two is eat half now and hide the other half so no one else eats it. Three, eat it and throw it up. You know, like not eating it, like that's not, that's nothing to, that's another world that I do not occupy. Okay. So as soon as she said that to me, though, I was terrified because I'm like, these are the people who specialize in this. And if she has no idea what I'm talking about, I'm in big trouble. Um, and to this day, I still meet people in the medical profession who really do not understand food addiction and compulsive overeating. They don't get it. And even people in the world of nutrition who really negate the fact that this is a real thing. Everybody's well-intentioned. I'm sure there are also people who are out there to make money and that's fine. And there's money to be made in the world of weight loss. And I hold nothing against people. There's nothing wrong with wanting to make money. Um, however, it's, it's irresponsible to not have that information when it's available. I will say that. Or at least be open to the idea that this might be a real thing if you have enough people coming to you and saying this. That said, I'm gonna get off my little soapbox then. Um, but basically, um, I knew I was in trouble because if the people in the coats can't help me, then I'm on my own. So the only thing I could think to do was when I was about 16, there was a woman who came to my school and she spoke about how she used to um, eat a lot and then make herself throw up. Now, ostensibly, she was there to tell people not to do this. But as soon as she said, like, eat anything you want and lose weight, I was like, I'm in. Let's do this. Like, this is great. Um, and because I am a low bottom, very quick moving addict, I was binging and purging, you know, eight, nine, 10 times a day within a matter of months. And to me, this was like my magic pill. I was very excited about it um, because, if, listen, I already knew I wasn't going to be a thin person. I, I had resigned myself to the fact that I was never going to be a normal sized person. Fine. But at least just don't let the numbers keep going up. That scared me because in my head, I had made a deal with myself that once I saw a certain number on the scale, I was going to commit suicide, like not in a hyperbolic way, like I was actually going to. 
Um, and I saw myself going there and I was really, I didn't want to. So I was very excited to find this magical cure. And I know that there are people in this room who have tried it and they, they just, you know, it was something they couldn't do. And I know people who, you know, did it for many, many years, um, and hated it the whole time. I'll be honest with you. I loved it. I loved being a bulimic. I liked having that control. I had no problem doing anything I needed to do to get the food out of me. Um, it felt almost like, um, like a religious ritual just to be like cleaned out afterward. Um, but it was also really intense and painful, but I felt like I deserved it a little bit because I had so much shame and, and fear. And I just felt like there was something deeply wrong with me. Um, and there was one night when I was purging, when the food got caught in my throat and I started choking and like not breathing. I was like, I'm going to die. And all I could think was not, please don't let me die, but please don't let me die like this because I don't want people to find me later. I was, that was more important to me. Like my pride was more important to me, you know? But anyway, I remember praying to the God I didn't believe in at that point and saying, listen, just don't let me die like this. I promise I'll never do this again. And the food popped out of my throat, just out. I have no idea how, just did. And 10 minutes later, I went back down to the kitchen. So, you know, God was keeping his end of the bargain, but I wasn't keeping mine. Anyway, fast forward, um, my, there, my mother, I shared a bathroom with my sister and my sister told on me and I hated her for a long time for that because there was an intervention and I had to go to outpatient and la, 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 la. And I didn't want to hear what these people were saying. I had this thing under control, get out of my way, stop telling me what to do. Because if you take this away from me, I know what's going to happen. And I don't want that to happen to me. And um, long story short, I had to stop until I went to college. And then when I went to college, I was on my own. And that's when things took off. Um, mind you, I still knew nothing about addiction. Um, I was, you know, drinking. I'm, I'm not an alcoholic yet. I'll put it that way. Because I always chose food first. But I could binge drink. And I definitely um, became addicted to pot. Um, but food was always my first love. However, I knew instinctively how I operated because I was at a party one night and somebody asked me if I wanted to do Coke. And I said, I can't because if I do it, I know I'll like it. And if I like it, I won't be able to stop. I was 19 when I said that. I have no idea how I knew that about me, except that that's just what I guess I knew how I operated with food, that that must be the case with anything else. Um, but again, didn't know anything about addiction at that point, just knew that that was the truth about me and that I was the only person on the planet who was like that. And it was my big, dark secret that nobody could know. Anyway, fast forward, I'm about 22 years old and, you know, basically in my room, in my dorm room, eating, smoking, contemplating suicide on a daily basis, lots of, you know, attention seeking behavior lots of self-obsession, body obsession, all that. I don't need to explain it to you. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's just that like really dark morass of self-pity they talk about in the book, right? 15 minutes. Uh, thank you so much. So I was in school for, for film and screenwriting at the time because I was going to be, you know, really famous. And um, I was working on a screenplay and I decided I was going to write a screenplay about the diet industry because if I wrote an expose about how, how they're trying to screw people, then people will forgive me for being fat because it's their fault. So um, 
So I called my mother. I was living in Boston. I called my mother who was living in New Jersey. And I said, listen, I heard about, I, I don't know how I heard about OA. Don't ask me. I have no idea. I just know that I heard about it. And I said to my mom, listen, I heard about this group of fat people who get together and talk about food. So I want you to go to one of these meetings and then call me back and tell me what they said so I can put it in my screenplay. And she was like, okay, cool. I'll go. Um, so she went and she called me back and she said, you know, maybe you should go to one of those meetings. And I was so offended. <laughs> I was like, I was like, she might as well have just said, like, I was, God forbid, like a pedophile or something. Like, what? Me? Like, how dare you? You know? But anyway, um, I decided, um, I went online a couple of days later and I saw that there happened to be a meeting down the street from me in like half an hour. And um, it was up the block. And all I had to do was go. Now, this is February, people, okay? So I don't know how many of you live have ever lived in New England in the winter, but it's so cold, your bones hurt, okay? Like, it sucks. I live in Israel now. It's, it's as hot as the surface of the sun, and I'm a happy as a clam because I, I did 38 winters and I'm over it, okay? Being cold, in my opinion, really sucks. So going out of my dorm room to this meeting was a real to do. Like I had to get on my jeans and pull on my boots and put on my sweater and my jacket. And like, I didn't want to do it, but I just, I went because I don't know why. So I go to this meeting that's at this church, um, which I'll get to in a minute. And it's in this classroom. And I look in the window of this, of this door and I'm like, wait a minute. There were maybe like a dozen people in there and only like one or two of them were actually fat. So I'm like, what are those people spies? Like, what are they doing there? Like, what's going on? Um, but someone saw me and I was like, oh, crap. All right, fine. So I went in and I'm sitting there listening to these people talk, which was weird. It was February, right? So they're all talking about Valentine's Day and like what they did on Valentine's Day. And I'm like, you guys, where's the scale? When are you going to tell me where to weigh myself and like give me like a medal or something? What's going on? but they were just talking about their lives. And I was really confused. And then the guy, there was a, a person in the meeting and they said, hi, my name is so-and-so and I'm a compulsive overeater. And I was like, what are those words that you just said? It was, I felt like it was that same like winning slot machine moment. I was like, whoa, there's a name, like whatever you just said, that's, that's what I am. And if there's a name for this thing, then that means it's a thing. And I'm not the only one who has it, which is like, it was a mind blowing concept to me. I thought I was this like broken person that this like freak that nobody else could possibly understand what I was going through. So even though I really had no idea what anybody was talking about in that room, I was like, you guys are my people. And if I said to you, if someone says to you, just don't eat it, you're going to understand my reaction to that. So I didn't fully get what was happening, but I knew that I had to keep coming back here. So two years later, um, I experimented for about two years during that time. I like took on a sponsor and she told me like, you know, maybe you should call me and tell me what you're going to eat every day. And I was like, yeah, whatever weirdo. Like I thought she was like asking me to show her my underwear or something. I was like, that's so weird. Why would I tell you what I'm eating? Um, and you know, I was sort of peripheral, but I kept kind of hanging around. But at the same time, here's the thing though. Once you're here, it ruins eating for you. Because, because now you know what you're doing. It's like the mafia, right? Like you can't, like you can think you're out, you're not out. It's not like you're staying in forever. So once I came to OA, eating was not fun anymore because now I knew what I was doing. 
And it's, it's, it's just like, I can't even get the joy out of it anymore. Um, but the, despite that, and despite knowing what I was doing, the addiction still had me. And I watched myself do things when I didn't even want to do them. And that scared me more than anything, because there was one day I went to this convenience store. And of course I called out sick to work because I'm not a functional addict and binged purged and was so sick laying on my couch, room spinning, not okay. And I was just like, okay, I am never doing this again. And 10 minutes later, I got up and went back to the convenience store. I did not want to go to the convenience store. I did not want to eat. I did not want to, but I did it anyway. And that's when I knew, like, I started to understand what this thing was about, that it has, it's this sort of animal in me that takes over. I lose the power of choice. And it says it in the big book. We lose the power of choice in drinking. Um, Once I introduce those substances, I have how many, sorry? 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Thank you. Um, I lose the power of choice once I introduce these things into my system. So I didn't realize what that was until I really saw it in action. I felt like a a puppet on a string. It was terrifying. Anyway, long story short, um, I started, I graduated college and I really, I was basically qualified to wait tables. So I moved home with my parents and um, had to just sort of figure out what I was doing. And I was basically rotting because I was one foot in program one foot out, not really knowing what I wanted, what I was doing. And I was waiting for someone to do this for me. I was waiting for someone to fix it because my whole life, my mother had fixed it for me, or at least tried to. There was always somebody who was there to take care of me. I grew up in a a wealthy family. So I never had to like want for anything. I snapped my fingers and it was mine. So the idea of having to like put in actual effort was beyond me. But I went to a meeting one night and there were people there who had what I wanted. They had, they had maintained, there was a woman there who had, was maintaining like a 200 plus pound weight loss over 20 years. People were married. People had kids, people had jobs, they had lives. And I was like, I want that. And this like light bulb Eureka cartoon moment happened where it was like, if you want what they have, why don't you do what they do? And it was like, so obvious, like A plus B equals C, but I could not get it until that moment when the wires crossed. Um, but once I did, that's when everything changed. That was March 29, 2004. I got a sponsor that night and I basically asked her, I said, you know, tell me what to do and I'll do it, which I n- never would have done. I mean, I almost got kicked out of high school like a thousand times because I like, tell me what to do. If you tell me what to do, I'll do the opposite, take pictures and post it on Instagram. Okay. So like, it's not, it's not like I want to follow directions, but in this case, I was so desperate. I was willing to do what I was told. So in the beginning, these were in the early 2000s there and people who have been around for a while um, can probably attest to this, but the focus for a a long time in OA was, it was similar to, it was very much focused on like food plans and abstinence uh, versus the 12 steps, um, which was a trend in in all the 12 step programs for a while. There was a lot of like um, therapy modalities that kind of got mixed in there. And it wasn't until in the last, like, I'd say 10 years where people started really coming back to the original program, which is the big book as it's written by Bill W. in the first 100, um, which is the foundation for all 12-step programs. But anyway, at that point, I needed to be focused on a food plan because I didn't know how to eat. I didn't know how to have a meal. I didn't know how to put food on a plate and have it be over when I was done eating. So these people really taught me how to do that, like how to weigh and measure my food, how to stay away from certain substances that kicked off an allergic reaction in me. Um, and I lost weight. I was 22 years old. Right. So I sneezed and lost hundred pounds, um, over that. And all of a sudden I was a 
not just a thin person, but I was a thin, young, attractive person that passed for normal. Um, I remember one day I lived in Manhattan by the time I was abstinent for a while. And I remember walking into Armani and trying on a gown just because I could and being like, yeah. And I thought like, that was it, you know, and I live in America, right? So all you have to do as a woman is be pretty. It doesn't matter how you behave as a person, just be pretty. Um, and so I never really paid attention to the kind of person I was. I was just supposed to be thin and pretty. Um, however, after about, let's say two or two years of that, I realized that I was more rageful, more anxious, and more uncomfortable in my skin than I had ever been at 250 pounds, which made no sense to me because in my head the whole time it was when I lose weight, everything's going to be perfect. The credits of my romantic comedy are going to roll and everything's going to be perfect and I'm going to find my man and it's going to be fine and it's all going to be good and nothing bad is ever going to happen to me ever again. Um, not true. So I ended up like the same way I did with my sponsor, where I said, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Um, and by that point, I was living in Boston. I went to another sponsor at the time who was affiliated with a group called Big Book Step Study. Um, and I said, tell me what to do and I'll do it. And she said, you need to work the steps out of the big book directly as it's laid out. So um, these people who are based in the Boston area, they were from AA. Um, and they also noticed like a, a watering down of, of the big book and basically based out in these people in Massachusetts connected with some of the old timers who were like Bill W's sponsees and grand sponsees who taught them how to re how to do it, like really do it the way that Bill in the first 100 did. So they they've since started a movement that spread out and raised like a lot of people are doing this, not just in AA, but in programs everywhere. Um, five minutes. Thank you so much. So basically I, um, I got to get experience from as like a great, great, great grand sponsee of like the first group, which is pretty cool anyway. So I knew that I had to do the work. I was willing to do the work. So I jumped into the work and wouldn't you know it around the, right after I wrote my fourth step, I met the man who was going to become my husband. And, um, we got married very quickly and thank God we're still married. Um, it was totally crazy and impulsive, but it was the right decision because, uh, he's a good guy anyway. So, um, so I was like, oh, so it all worked out. See, I just did the, I just wrote my fourth step and turned over my fifth. And then I met my, my man and now it's fine now. Right? No, because within four years I had already left him twice and we were on the brink of divorce. Um, so I had to finish what I had started. And even though I had made amends, I had to go back and really do the work and really look at my part, which was something I had never done before. And remember, this wasn't because I was eating. I was abstinent this entire time. It was because I was restless, irritable, and discontent. It says it in, in the doctor's opinion, we are restless, irritable, and discontent unless we can again experience the sense of ease and comfort that comes by taking a few drinks. The order of that sentence is on purpose. We think that we're restless, irritable, and discontent because we can't stop drinking. No, 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 no. We are restless, irritable, and discontent because that is our default setting. And we medicate ourselves by drinking and then kick off the allergy. Okay. So now I was unmedicated. The food was out of the way, but that just meant I was a sociopath, right? I didn't have any buffer. So I was just this restless, irritable, and discontent person. That's what I needed to take care of, which is what the steps are for. It's like a spiritual chemotherapy. Okay, because 
I, the medication I had been using for 20 years stopped working, but once it's gone, I'm still sick. So I um, went back and connect, reconnected with the big book stuff study group. And, um, and I did my fourth, did a thorough fourth, gave over my fifth. And I went home after doing my fifth that night. And by that point I was married with um, two little babies and I had two stepdaughters who were in and out. And um, that night by some miracle, everybody was asleep by 7 p.m. And so I sat down and I did my sixth and seventh step and I went into meditation and I had a spiritual experience. Um, I had the experience of knowing that God was in that room the way I know that you're on the other side of this computer. That would not have been possible without working the 12 steps. It was not an experience I was looking for or that I wanted to have per se. I just wanted to feel better. That's why I came in. I just wanted to feel better. But then I realized that there's a lot more to it than this. And that having a spiritual experience is the essence of everything, because that's the only way my restless, irritable, and discontent is going to lift. And that's the only way I'm going to continue to live well is by aligning my will with God's of letting go of the personhood of the person I think I'm supposed to be and become sort of melt myself into what God would have me be. And that's how I'm going to live peacefully. So that food is never part of the equation because I don't need it. There's nothing to medicate anymore. Um, because I had that experience, everything changed. Now, am I walking around on cloud nine and in like God consciousness all the time? Hell no. In fact, we just moved and you can ask everyone in my family. I've been a raging bitch. Okay. Like not like not okay. Totally like, like it's cute that you guys want me to come here and speak and like tell you all these cool spiritual things. I am by no means anywhere near any kind of anything. Okay. Like, I'm just, I'm just holding it together over here. Um, but I'm trying every day. Um, but uh, that's what this is about. I thought that food, that food, first I thought food was the answer. Then I thought not having food was the answer. Then I thought a thin body was the answer. None of these things were the answer because we're very lucky as addicts that every human being has this hunger for something. And we're very lucky that we run ourselves into the wall with it so hard that we have to go deeper and find the thing that we're actually looking for. There are a lot of people who just get to float because they don't deal with the consequences that we do. We're very lucky that we have the consequences that we do that force us to show up here so that we get to live in a healthy, full way, but it takes work. But it, if you see someone who has what you want, like it's because they did the work. So I'm not going to come here and tell you that it's like a happily ever after thing. You got to work your ass off, but it's good work and it's worth it. Um, and it begins with abstinence. Abstinence, you know, somebody said to me years ago, you know, we don't, we don't work the steps That's to get fun. abstinent. Thank you so much. I'll just wrap up with this. We don't work the steps to get abstinent. We get abstinent to work the steps. And at the time I was like, yeah, okay, thanks. Where's the gap? I'm going to go buy my, myself a new pair of jeans. Um, but now I get it, right? We get abstinent because we need to get the food out of the way so we can focus on recovery. Thanks.